and in the last many years now that I've had so much contact with people who have lost loved ones to gun violence, I still do not presume that I know what their loss feels like. There is some shared understanding, but everyone's grief is different. I'm Stephanie Gary, Executive Vice President of Communal Partnerships at Plaza Jewish Community Chapel in New York City and the host of Exit Strategy. It's my honor and privilege to welcome my friend and rabbi, Joel Mosbacher, to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you, Stephanie. Rabbi Mosbacher is the senior rabbi at Temple Sharei Tefillah in New York City and is a recognized and respected social justice leader within Reform Judaism and beyond. He is national co-chair of the Do Not Stand Idly By campaign of the Metro Industrial Areas Foundation. The campaign is dedicated to the reduction of gun violence, no less than a crisis in this country of ours, and one, sadly, that has touched Rabbi Mosbacher and his family in the most personal ways imaginable. So... We have a lot to talk about and much to learn about here. Let's start by talking about your father. I'd like, if you would, for you to describe your remarkable dad, Lester. And I want you to talk about what happened on that tragic day when you lost him in 1999. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, He was a great dad. Uh, He loved my brother and I. He was a baby hog. Everywhere there was a baby, he would go and swoop them up and could uh, make a screaming baby just be calm and giggly. (laughs) And so that's the dad I aspired to be, was a present dad, uh, a good dad. He was a lifelong White Sox fan and raised me as a Chicago sports fan. He was just a dedicated husband and father, and we didn't have enough time with him. He unfortunately was murdered, had had his place of business in Chicago in uh, January of 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he owned and operated a check cashing business uh, in the city. On January 19th, 99, he was, he was murdered there. So sadly taken from us one day short of his 53rd birthday. Hmm. I know you had shared with me the person who murdered him was somebody he knew. And I want you to just talk about that for a moment, because when you shared that information with me, it was very clear that your dad truly was this kind, wonderful, giving person that you describe. So I want to be clear. I think I mentioned to you there actually were two separate trials yes. uh, involving a man whose name I, I don't want to give the honor of repeating on this podcast. Mm -hmm. He was convicted in the first trial and then acquitted in the second. So no one is actually being held accountable for his murder, but our family believes and there's evidence, strong evidence to suggest that this man was actually responsible for his murder. And this was a man who grew up in the neighborhood where my dad's business was. And my dad would hire him to run errands, run out and get lunch to help my dad out in ways that were really, really useful. He, you know, my dad paid him for, for all of his work. That was the kind of trusting person that my dad was. Unfortunately, it was that trust that was betrayed because this man knew my dad's every move. 
and our uh, distinct understanding is that it was that knowledge of my dad and my dad's trust of him that were unfortunately the double sort of whammy of conditions that resulted in this man being able to uh, take advantage of my dad's trust and be involved in his murder. Let's just touch on where you were when you found out that your dad had been shot. I know you were in Atlanta. So just talk a little bit about that call that came in, your experience in that moment. Because I think, as you shared with me, it's helpful that people know that you, clergy, are people too. So I was in my office just around nine o'clock in the morning on that day. And I got a call. Actually, my assistant came through and said that my aunt was on the phone. My aunt was just almost impossible to understand through tears. My aunt said that my father had been shot at his business and she wasn't sure of his condition, but that I should come right away. And uh, I was in an office sort of down the hall that wasn't like in the main suite, but Mm -hmm. I think I screamed as loud as I ever have. And the rest of the next couple of hours are kind of a blur. I got to Chicago and uh, made my way from the airport to the to the hospital, and my dad was technically still alive. They had mm-hmm. kept him alive in hopes that my brother and I could make it to the hospital. So that was the beginning of the worst day of my life. Mm-hmm. And how long after you arrived did he die? It was a few hours. He was on life support, mm-hmm. and again, the hope was to keep them alive for my brother and I to, to make it there. So really it was sort of ultimately our decision at at a certain point to discontinue life support. So it was, it was a few hours. So here you are a son, a newly ordained rabbi and a new dad, trying to learn learn from my dad, how to be a dad. And here you are in this moment, in this state of shock assume the role that you are, which is a son. In that moment, did you feel the Chicago community that you knew so well totally come around you and support you in a way that one would hope would happen? Absolutely did. I cannot imagine a community, a synagogue community coming together in a more extraordinary way. I have been blessed with many great rabbis in my life, which is no small part of the reason why I became a rabbi. Yes. Rabbi Leo Wolko, now of blessed memory. Rabbi Ellen Dreyfus, who uh, was the rabbi of the congregation and who had known me since I was about 10 years old, just took over. Actually, when we were still in the hospital, we called Rabbi Wolko. Again, it's kind of a blur, but he asked me if we wanted to do the Vidui prayer, a prayer that we say, uh, or that a person says if they can, or can be said for them, sort of a confessional prayer at the end of life. And my dad was in no ability to do that. So Rabbi Wilko asked, and it was the first moment where, to your point, to your question, it was like, am I going to be the rabbi? Am I going to be the son? Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I wanted him to say Vidui for my dad, or or if, if I would. And 
I decided in that moment that I would do it. And from that moment on, there was never an expectation that I would be the family's rabbi in that moment. I spoke briefly at my dad's funeral. I have no idea what I said or if, if anybody could understand what I said. But Rabbi Wilko and, and Rabbi Dreyfus and the whole community surrounded me and my family with love and support. These moments when community comes together makes a difference. It absolutely makes a difference. That outpouring was extraordinary and was really an example to me in the darkest times about of what it looks like when a, when a community turns up for one of its own and for the family that surrounds that person. Is grief grief or is it different, do you think, when you lose someone who you're close to under such violent and senseless circumstances? Is there a difference there? All loss is a loss, and there are no two losses that are the same. Mm -hmm. I really try to say, to remember and to teach my team and to remind lay leaders to never say, I know what you feel. So I guess this is a long-winded way of saying, yes, there are different kinds of losses and the dynamics are different. There's this book called No Time for Goodbyes that describes the different kinds of dynamics in a situation where you never have, where you don't have a chance, where it's a sudden death. Mm -hmm. I think the dynamics are different. I'm just also careful. And in the last many years now that I've had so much contact with people who have lost loved ones to gun violence, I still do not presume that I know what their loss feels like. We are indeed all part of a fraternity that none of us or sorority that we wish that we were a part of. Mm -hmm. There is some shared understanding, but everyone's grief is different. There's a Jewish custom of, of the family and friends helping to fill the grave. And I learned from one of my rabbis the idea is that after you take a shovel full of earth and place it in the grave, you don't hand the shovel to the next person. You put it back in the earth. Why? This rabbi taught me that every person grieves differently. You don't pass your grief on to the next person or presume that your grief is the same as the next person. So I, I take that very seriously in my work and from my experience. Do you tap into your grief when it comes to relationship with your congregants? Do you bring that in? It seems to me it would be impossible not to, but is that something that you're conscious of with your congregants? Holding that feeling for me of knowing what loss feels like enables me to be most fully present with people who have experienced loss, whatever the loss is. There's been so many losses in the last 30 months, right? Yes. Even though those losses are different than the loss I've experienced, somehow holding on to the feeling of loss without letting it overwhelm me, without letting it sort of blind me to the reality that the person in front of me has had their own unique experience of loss, that holding that feeling and also distinguishing myself from and presuming that I don't know exactly what the other person is feeling, I think makes me the best kind of pastor that I can be. I believe that most clergy are caretakers. Tell me how you find your own personal balance in being a caretaker for thousands of people. But in order to do this work, the way I want to do it, with the strength I want to do it, means that I need to take care of myself. I need to work out. 
I have in the last 30 months or so uh, gotten into mindfulness meditation practices. I love to bake and cook and you know, a mess in the kitchen for me is a good day off. Feeding other people is probably part of my love language and, and it also is just so nourishing to me. Remembering the things that ground me, the remember the things that renew me is really important. Taking time off and taking care of my physical and mental self is really important. And then also trying to, within the work, try, and it isn't true every day, to find a way to have a sustainable pace. And I think that's something that's important for everybody. I want to talk about the process as you took this experience with violent loss and grief and that you became involved as an activist to end gun violence. I think it's an important conversation for people to hear. They need to understand that there are things that they can do. So talk about your journey down that path. I did not immediately become an activist by any stretch. I was dealing with my own grief. I was sitting through trials with my mom. I was trying to help my mom put one foot in front of the other. And honestly, I just didn't know what to do with my story. So for a long time, I, I spoke at the Million Mom March in Atlanta in 2000. After that, I could count on maybe one hand the number of times I talked about this loss from the pulpit. It was a long time, actually. It wasn't an immediate thing. In the interim, our younger son was born, who was named after my dad. And I knew someday I would have to tell both of my kids how their grandfather had died. It was complicated. Uh, my teachers also in rabbinical school encouraged us to think about if you're going to tell your personal story, why are you doing it from the BIMA, for example? Why are you doing that? Are you doing that because you need therapy and you think you're going to get it in front of 750 people on Yom Kippur, in which case, maybe get some therapy. Mm. I had been getting involved over a number of years, starting in about 2007 with community organizing through the Metro Industrial Areas Foundation. And after the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012, a few key leaders in, in Metro IAF knew that I had a story that I wasn't telling. And they asked me if I would be willing to join my story with the stories of so many other people uh, of diverse backgrounds to see if we could create a campaign that could make change on this, on this issue. With a lot of discernment and discussion with my family and everything else, and with a lot of discernment about what was this campaign going to be, I decided that it was time. I was a part of creating the campaign called Do Not Stand Idly By, which, as you said, is a different angle on trying to reduce gun violence, about which I can say a lot more. But it was a long journey. I think I'm really glad that I didn't sort of rush into it. Tell us a bit about the work, about the impact and the challenges of the campaign. Our campaign is based on a, an essential idea that there are multiple ways to make change in on gun violence in America. The primary focus that we have, that, that many people have, and is absolutely understandable, is that Congress and the president, whoever is in Congress and whoever is in the White House, can make a dramatic change by passing legislation, which they absolutely can. And we were heartened by the recent legislation. But early on in our own power analysis, we realized that there was a major player in this story that no one was talking about, and that was the gun manufacturers, the makers 
of the almost 400 million guns that exist in this country that no one was talking about what they could do. And what we assessed in short was that they have a great deal of power to reduce gun trafficking in America. And they have a great deal of power to increase gun safety in America. They decide which dealers they're going to sell their guns through. The vast majority of gun stores in America are responsible gun stores. They never have a crime gun traced to their store. They're responsible. They're as good as a gun store can be. Something like 5% of the gun stores in America are responsible for essentially all the guns that turn up in crime scenes. Hmm. So what does that mean? That means that gun manufacturers could either shut those dealers down or hold them accountable to follow local and state laws, dramatically overnight impact the trafficking of guns on the East Coast here. Law enforcement calls I-95 the iron pipeline because it's guns that are trafficked up from places that don't have such tough gun laws, et cetera. They could dramatically reduce gun trafficking and they could increase gun safety. They could innovate not just in killing power, but in technologies that would make guns harder to use from people that weren't supposed to have them. So they could do these two essential things, reduce gun trafficking, increase gun safety. And the good news, they could do it without any more laws being passed. They could just do it because it's the right thing. But they're clearly not going to do it just because it's the right thing. They're not going to do it just because my dad was murdered. They're not going to do it just because 45,000 Americans are dying by gun every year. They're not going to do it because the Torah says, do not stand idly by while your neighbors bleed. If they were going to do it for any of those reasons, they already would have. The power of our campaign is from the understanding that 40% of the guns that are sold in this country every year are purchased with our tax dollars by mayors and police chiefs and sheriffs and governors and the federal government. And we are attempting to marshal that massive purchasing power of our elected officials to press gun manufacturers directly to control their worst dealers and innovate in gun safety. That's the theory of change of the campaign. So faith communities, where do they stand in all of this? How do we really wrangle them to become voices for this campaign? as well as the individuals who want to participate. The real power of this campaign comes from the fact that individual communities, faith communities, first of all, communities working across lines of difference are so powerful. It's really hard for public officials to say no to a meeting of Jews and Christians and Muslims and people of all faiths and no particular faith. It's really hard. And they also know that if they say yes, that we will stand behind them and thank them publicly for doing the right thing. That's really hard for public officials to resist. Yeah, right. But largely communities can get involved wherever they are by going to the public officials, telling them this story. Do you realize you have power not just by the weapons in your holster, but by the fact that you buy guns, which means you are the consumer. We are the consumer through you. You can ask for responsibility that will make your job easier. And people have found across the country, the ability to, to do this. And, and what we learned too, and I know you know so well, Stephanie, is that the power of story mm. is really hard to combat, I guess is the word I would say. Most Americans are not more than a degree or two removed from gun violence. So if you go to your public official and not just say, well, we want you, I mean, it's good to say we want you to do X, Y, and Z. But if you start with, let me tell you a story mm -hmm. about me 
about my friend, about my rabbi, about how afraid I am to send my kids to school or to the movie theater or how afraid I am to go visit my public official when they're doing a public event or whatever else. That starts from a different place. Is there advice that you can share with people who may be going through traumatic loss or is there something you would recommend in terms of support for people going through traumatic loss? You don't have to do it alone and you probably shouldn't try. That might be true of all loss too. (laughs) I was like the congregants when I was first ordained who looked at me and like, how could you possibly help me? Because you're only 28 years old and you haven't lived life and you've lived a charmed life, which I did. Now on the other end, I think I can remember early days where I'd be like, no one can possibly understand. No one can help me because no one can know what I've been through. What I came to understand is that it is true (laughs) that no one can know what I went through. And that doesn't mean that no one can be there for me. I found that when I let other people in, I felt held and not alone. I felt like those were the moments where I could imagine taking this grief with me and being able to to walk forward into the world. So finding friends, finding community, finding faith, if that speaks to you, finding a therapist, finding a support group, don't try and do it alone. That's, I think, the biggest piece of advice. And don't assume that unless someone who has experienced exactly what you've been through, that there's no one out there that can understand what loss feels like and be present for you in all of that. Rabbi Joel Mosbacher, thank you. We have clearly talked about such difficult issues. I really am honored that you shared your journey with us. I thank you for your activism, all that you do in the Jewish community and beyond. This is, for sure, one of the most troubling and immense challenging times that we've gone through. And I'm happy that you are a sage voice taking us through the journey. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for letting me share my story. And thank you for making space for this important conversation. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, We'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.